Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The latest continuing resolution Congress passed last week avoided a government shutdown. But even if lawmakers achieve that same feat again next year on the two different dates when the CR expires, there's still a lot of other ways the rest of fiscal 2024 could be messy for federal agencies and their vendors. To talk more about it, we're joined now by Larry Allen, the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And Larry, let's start by talking about some of the implications of the way Congress resolved the latest impending possible government shutdown, which is this laddered CR approach. It's complicated. It's much more complicated than any CR we've ever seen before. What what are the main concerns that, that you have with, with what's ahead in January and February? Jared, my primary concern still remains that we very much have the possibility of at least a partial government shutdown. In passing the most recent continuing resolution, as you inferred, Congress set up kind of a two-tiered system uh, the non-controversial agencies, we'll just put, call them that for sake of identification, uh, their funding is good through January 19th. And I would expect that most, if not all, of those agencies will get their funding for FY24 right around that time. Uh, it's the second set of agencies like DOD and the Department of Homeland Security that we have to watch out for. Those are the ones that, although they're funded now through the beginning of February, there's sharp disagreement. Uh, just with, even within the House representatives, not to mention between the House and Senate, on funding levels, where the cuts are going to come, how much aid we're going to provide overseas, things of that nature. And I just think that uh, you know, we can't discount the fact that there are going to be some members of Congress who won't be happy this appropriation cycle until they get at least a partial shutdown. So we've got to watch that. The other issue that I think people need to be aware of is a 1% sequester, an automatic cut that's going to kick in on January 1st. Congress put that provision in uh, the debt ceiling bill earlier this year, Jared. Uh, and they said, look, if we Congress don't do our job and pass all the appropriations bills by the end of the 2023 calendar year, we're going to impose an automatic 1% across the board cut in discretionary spending. Now, surprise. <laughs> They didn't get that done by uh, the end of 2023 calendar year. So we're going to have that. Now, Congress could always restore it, but I don't think that they're really in a mood to do that. Yeah, that automatic cuts just struck me as a weird decision, because if there's anything we learned from the last time we did sequestration in 2013, it's that automatic cuts do not work as an incentive to get Congress to do its job. And we obviously saw the consequences of that back then. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty around what that 1% would look like um, because it's it would be subject to some kind of order from the president that would dictate the terms of exactly how it would work. And I guess maybe you have more clarity on this than I do. It would happen midway through the fiscal year when agencies have already spend, been spending at 2023 levels. So that 1% cut would be, you know, it reduce the budget authority for the entire year in the middle of the year. So it would feel even steeper than 1%. Does that seem right to you? It would feel steeper, uh, Jared. And there are a couple of different ways to measure it. The one that you uh, talked about is the most straightforward way. You know, you're, you're here on a continuing resolution. You can't start anything new. And then surprise, here you are somewhere through the year and you can't even spend the money that you've been spending to keep your doors open and keep all the current missions uh, supported. 
So, you know, you're going to have a problem with that. But another way that a lot of people are looking at it is look at the Department of Defense as an example. DOD is projected to get a spending increase for FY24. So right now they're stuck at FY23 levels, which, you know, frankly, the Department of Defense has learned to manage on that until the end of the calendar year. Now we're going to have to do it for longer than that. And so not only are they not going to get an increase, they're going to get a cut from their baseline. So if you look at the difference that way, that's a pretty stark cut as well, and a pretty stark cut in an area, national security, where I don't really think a lot of people would like to see a cut right now. And they have the additional management challenge of being, I think, the only agency that has funding on two different steps of the ladder. They have their Milcon budget in that first tranche that you talked about and the rest of the defense budget on, on, on a second step of the ladder that comes later. That's right. You can build all of the uh, military uh, buildings that you need to do, all the military facilities. You might just not be able, be able to put any IT or personnel in. Let's, uh, let's pivot here to several really significant uh, uh, rule changes that GSA proposed last week. I know you're watching two of them in particular, one dealing with uh, some more clarity around SICA. Let's, let's talk about that and how that would work with schedules and why you think it's a good thing. Jared, what we're talking about here is GSA is proposing to Congress a change in the Competition and Contracting Act that would specifically recognize the GSA Multiple Award Schedule Program. When SICA was passed back in the 1980s, I think safely to say before any of us were working in government procurement, uh, they originally called out the Multiple Award Schedules Program as meeting the demands of the Competition and Contracting Act, if doing so resulted in the lower lowest overall cost alternative to the government. Traditionally, that's been interpreted as meaning, uh, hey, you know, it's lower if we don't have to start a new procurement from scratch. It's lower if we get to lower our procurement overhead by using pre-existing contracts. And that's always been pretty well understood. More recently, however, there have been uh, some questions about that in GSA and, and uh, the whole move towards low price, technically acceptable contracting has kind of gotten caught up in this definition, Jared. And so what GSA is trying to do is ask Congress that uh, the language would be modified somewhat so that using multiple award schedule contracts would be in the best interest of the government so long as doing so represented the best overall value. And that's consistent with best value, the best value message that GSA and other agencies are trying to send for many of their acquisitions. Uh, certainly low price has a place, but so too does best value. That's just kind of common sense uh, from everybody's business and personal lives. And so I think this is a good move. I think this is something that GSA has wanted to do for a couple of years. Now they've asked Congress to do it. I hope that Congress will look upon that favorably. Do you see it as meaningfully reducing the number of cases where, where agencies feel like they need to do LPTA competitions? I'm not so sure from a customer perspective, Jared, except for the fact that if this uh, modification does go through, it'll be something that GSA and its scheduled contractors will be able to say, hey, we meet the brand new revised SICA definition which is always something that you can play off to increase the visibility of the program and remind people, hey, the schedules are here, they're competitive, they're a good way to buy. I, I think internally inside GSA, it will eliminate some confusion about just what that precise meaning is on value versus cost. 
and I think it might clear up as many internal headaches as it does external ones. The other one that you flagged for us in this week's newsletter is a, a GSA proposal um, to, to make permanent the uh, economic price adjustment ch- uh, changes that were made during the pandemic. Talk to us about why that's a big deal. So this is a big deal, Jared, because the economic price adjustment clause is the way that schedule contractors can increase their pricing on contract. And up until now, they've had four different economic price adjustments clauses in the same schedules program. A lot of it depending on whether or not you have professional services or products. And for products, there have been a 10% cap on how much you could raise your price in any one year. During the pandemic and and during the time of inflation in the last year or two, when prices obviously were going up by more than 10% a year in many cases, GSA took a deviation from their economic price adjustment clauses to reflect economic reality. And they're to be applauded for doing that. Now what they're trying to do is seeking to make that deviation permanent by saying, hey, GSA scheduled contracts are by definition based on commercial market prices and commercial market habits. We ought to be able to have an economic price adjustment mechanism in place that recognizes fluctuations in commercial pricing as impacting the price that buyers will pay on schedule, whether that's a decrease, which most contractors do decrease their prices in order to remain competitive when they need to do that, or an increase. If you have something, say, we've had in the past, we've had a hurricane take out a substantial amount of uh, wood from forest uh, production, and that caused the price of wood-based furniture to increase substantially. And so GSA had to make a special determination that uh, wood furniture companies could increase their pricing. It's the same thing here, but rather than doing it on a one-off basis, GSA is trying to bake in flexibility across the program. I think that's a good move too. And what does it mean for the types of information and amounts of information that schedule holders will need to provide to GSA to justify those increases when they feel like they need one? Jared, I think that's a really great question. And I think the thing that contractors need to keep in mind is that they can't assume, in fact, they shouldn't assume that their contracting specialist or contracting officer has all the latest economic data. They may not be uh, reading the Wall Street Journal and Federal News Network as much as other people are. Uh, So if you're a contractor seeking an economic price adjustment uh, on your contract, I recommend that you provide your contract specialist, contracting officer with additional data to support the requested increase. Look at things that are happening in the commercial market generally, in your market specifically. Keep in mind that to a certain extent, your schedule price is always going to be a little bit behind where you are commercially because you're going to have to show GSA that you have billed and been paid uh, commercially on those increased prices. But aside from the schedule-based pricing data to support your price increase request, I think you need to be prepared to provide a little extra data about what's going on in the economy generally so that the contracting officer understands. That all makes sense. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, thank you as always. Jared, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.